You're uh, taking your seat again. I want you to welcome this morning with me Bernie and Carrie Tower. That's right. There you go. And Bernie and Carrie are uh, IMB workers, International Mission Board in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And uh, it's not just the two of them. Perhaps that's a little obvious. Uh, Carrie is pregnant and December the 21st, due date, right? But there's also another, there's, a, there's another tower. Where is that slide with the, the three of them? There we go. Kai. That's, yeah, there you go. I was waiting for that. Oh, you're a little slow on that. One, try one more time. One, two, three. Yeah, there you go. Awesome. Hey, uh, so International Mission Board workers uh, go for terms, and uh, a term is usually three or four years, and these guys have been serving there for four years, and they're home on what's called a stateside assignment or a furlough, and uh, we we're fortunate to get them to come all the way out to Arizona from Texas and Montana, and, uh, which is where they're from, respectively, and uh, I want you guys to share just a little bit about how in the world do you get to Malaysia from West Texas and Montana? What did God do in your lives to get you to do that? Um, thank you this time for remembering to introduce our son. It's funny because in the last service, I joked that he's with grandparents right now, so he is, of course, eating ice cream for breakfast. But during the last service, we got a video from the grandparents, and I'm pretty sure there was cookie remnants on his face. He was at the table eating cookies. Um, but yeah, we were living in Texas, and I was working as a nurse, and Bernie as a petroleum engineer when the Lord called us to go um, to Malaysia. And um, it was a, a process, um, especially for me, but the Lord just used a lot of various influences in our lives to um, get us overseas. Um, uh, his word, just spending time with him and in his word. Um, and as we began to pray for the nations, he really opened our eyes to um, the need for workers uh, internationally. And um, as we went on different various mission trips, um, we got to see firsthand just the lostness of, um, of the nations. And so God just really opened our, our eyes and our hearts to uh, international missions. So talk to us about who are the people that you're really leaning into to try to reach in Malaysia? How many of them are there? Good question. Um, it, it's kind of difficult to, to understand. You can see our city there. But um, to, to paint a picture, imagine you lived in an urban setting, um, growing, diverse, larger than the Phoenix Metroplex, and it, it had a varying number of ethnicities. And imagine your ethnicity was the largest ethnicity in the city. It made up almost half the population. Um, and there were a variety of others. Every ethnicity except yours has freedom of religion. They can choose to be Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, animistic, whatever, atheist, whatever they want, um, and practice that. But you and your ethnicity, about half the population of the city, it's about four million of your ethnicity, you by law are required to be Muslim. You have no choice. It's illegal for you to leave, to change your religion. It's on your ID card. Um, and it's illegal for others to share um, the good news or, or with the intent of you converting away. It's illegal for you to step foot in a church or a temple and illegal for a church made up of other ethnicities, not yours, um, to receive a Muslim. So that is our people and that is our city. Um, the Malay are our people and there's about 4 million of them in Kuala Lumpur, about 16 million of the 32 million in Malaysia. And um, 
They are highly unreached. Joshua Project has them, if you're familiar with the stats of unreached peoples, over 99% um, unreached um, with the gospel. One of the things that uh, we always want to remember when it comes to international missions and reaching people, there's a word that's really important. It's called access. And uh, it's not that there aren't churches in Kuala Lumpur. There are lots of churches in Kuala Lumpur. But that's one of the hindrances, isn't it, to getting the gospel? There are other things that get in the way of sharing the gospel with the Malay people. What are some of those things that hinder people actually sharing with them? Yeah, so as Bernie mentioned and Brian, there's a lot of churches in Malaysia, so you would think that the Malay have plenty of access to the gospel, but we have found that to be highly untrue. Um, this picture was taken at an international church, um, at the back of their bulletin, and you can see circled in red, it says for non-Muslims only. And we just kept seeing this over and over in different churches on their bulletins and banners, and we thought, well, maybe by law they have to put that on there. Um, but come to find out that they just choose to, um, just to, to cover their backs. Um, but we have found that the church has a lot of fear um, in regards to sharing the gospel with the Malay. Um, the first time we ever went to our small group in Malaysia, Bernie shared a story about how we shared the gospel with the Malay and they erupted in applause. And we said, no, 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 you don't understand. He didn't believe. And they said, no, we've just never heard of anybody sharing the gospel with a Malay. So um, they just have a, a mindset that just needs to be completely reversed. Um, so we work towards uh, helping them to see the vision for uh, their neighbors, for the Malay people. Um, and at this point, just trying to get them to pray for the Malay is an obstacle. And as we've done that, there, there are a few that God is working in believers in these other ethnicities that say, hey, God has placed us here, and there's an unreached people right here among us. And so we partnered with this local um, Chinese-Malaysian, and we were working with him to, in, to mobilize churches, but also we were getting out with him, engaging, and, and, and some people had come to faith and things. Um, but about a year and a half ago, our, our friend, and this guy, our friend, um, good friends with the family, he was driving away from this, this ministry spot, and middle of day and four or five black unmarked SUVs drove his car off the road and um, forced him to stop, busted his window, opened his door, pulled him out, threw him in the back of one of the SUVs and and took off and uh, surveillance was pulled from a uh, little bitty like mini mark kind of thing that you can find this on YouTube and um, and so he was active in reaching out and we were partnering with him even, even that morning I was messaging him about a, a training for um, we were looking to do together, and um, and whether it was funded by or carried out by the Islamic police, they um, they wanted to hinder what God was doing and starting to mobilize. So there are a lot of obstacles and challenges. Um, they're in in a very easy living city. So uh, getting the church even started for Malay people is difficult, right? What does it look like now, the church in Malay? Um, we're only aware of potentially one house church in, in the whole country among the Malay. Um, there are, we're, we have some believers we're um, discipling. There are a few groups we know of that are scattered around the country. Um, but they are, as Carrie mentioned, fearful. And even I, I think as we just sang the song, that was kind of my prayer. We say, Jesus, Jesus, silence the fear. Because um, even the Malay we're connected with often are too scared to connect with each other because of fear. They, they've turned each other in. So that's one of our prayers is silence the fear so that they will believe God's faithfulness, trust his word, and, and 
walk in obedience. That's good. So uh, what, what's a story, something that you've seen God do lately? Um, well, as Bernie was just saying, there's a little to no Malay church in Malaysia. Um, but we have come in contact with a couple um, that are Malay, and they have both believed years back. Um, and they have, they're probably the only ones we know that actually have a heart for their own people. Um, they want to see the Malay reached for the gospel. Um, and so they're currently doing seminary um, off the books. And um, they, their hope and goal is by the end of this year to have a Malay church started. Um, this is the first time we've really heard of anybody that has interest in even trying to gather a group of Malay together. That's awesome. Hey, uh, Lottie Moon, this is our Lottie Moon season. We take up an offering that's labeled by the name of the person. Uh, Lottie Moon, who was a missionary many years ago to China, she really gave her life so that the Chinese could uh, hear of Christ. And uh, so Southern Baptists, every year at December, we take up this offering for international missions. And uh, tell us, when we give to that offering, how does that impact your lives personally? Um, we told the last service, your giving to Lottie Moon allows us to eat at Chili's. Um, so thank you. Um, <laughs> they're like, are they serious? <laughs> um, I'm half serious. There is a Chili's in Kuala Lumpur, and that is our go-to date night spot to get us a little American. Um, that's, but, but in reality, we are so thankful for, for Southern Baptist, for you guys at Foothills, for giving to Lottie Moon, giving to the International Mission Board, because it allows us to put 100% of our time and effort into living there and proclaiming the gospel among those who have not heard. And over half the Malay we share the gospel with, which is we've shared with hundreds in the last several years, um, it's the first time they've ever heard the gospel. And so your, you giving allows us to, to just put our time and energy as a family to see See, these people have not heard of Jesus to know of the grace and love of Jesus. So, so thank you for giving. Please continue to do so. Um, and we're blessed that we, because of that, we don't have to worry about finance and all these things. If you want to like, well, how much are they making? You can go to IMB and you can see our salaries and all that junk. So, um, but it allows us to, to labor among these people. And so we're thankful to that and, and ask you continue to do so. Thanks for that. So what are, uh, what are a couple of ways that we can pray for you guys? Um, we would love prayer for this child um, and for a safe, healthy, and speedy delivery. Um, and then also just as a transition from a family of three to a family of four. And during that transition, we will be transitioning back to Malaysia. Um, and so it's just a, a, a lot at once. Um, so we would love prayers for that and as we get back to Malaysia, what do we put our time into? What do we say no to and what do we continue to put our hands at? Um, and then third, we would just ask that you pray that the Lord would just pour his spirit on Malaysia um, and just draw the Malay in a mighty, mighty way. Um, and we, uh, we have some good friends, Ishmael and Anis, that we would ask you pray for by name. We just feel like God is really drawing them to himself, and um, they could be pretty integral in um, some sort of movement among the Malay. So we'll do that. Uh, when the service is over, 
uh, Bernie and Carrie are going to be at guest services out there, and you can sign up and get an email from them. You can keep up with them. You can pray for them. They've got some prayer cards there as well. You can pick one of those up. And just uh, committing to pray for them. We want you to do that and uh, connect to them personally that way. So thanks, guys, for being here. I want to pray. We'll pray over those things, pray for our offering, and then we'll continue to worship that way. Father in heaven, we're grateful this morning for your word, and we thank you, uh, Father, that the story of the Bible is the story of you making promises and keeping them. In the Old Testament, you made a promise that a deliverer would come, a rescuer, a savior. And over and over, you fulfilled another promise after another after another until your plan was, had come to fruition in the birth of Christ. And now we can know him and we can see him. But, Father, there are many people in the world who have yet to hear of this one who has come to rescue us from our sins. And, God, we pray for the Malay people this morning. We pray that your spirit would be present and would be active and at work in the lives of Malay all over the city of Kuala Lumpur, all over the nation of Malaysia. God, I pray for Bernie and Carrie and other workers who are there and for churches and believers who are there that fear would be banished from their hearts and spirit-driven courage would rise up and that they would be vocal and that they would often share the good news of Christ, just what you're doing in their life and how they've come to depend on you and you've proven yourself faithful and true. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work and raise up a church of Malay people. They may work and worship underground. They may be sort of undercover but they can come to faith in Jesus and they can follow you and others can come along with them. We pray for that. We pray for Anish and Ishmael, Father, as they're hearing the gospel. Uh, Lord, we pray that they would see the light of the glory, the face of Jesus. They, they would see your glory in Jesus' face. That they would be convicted of their sins and brought into a saving faith with Christ. We pray for them, God, this morning that that would happen. And God, we pray for Bernie and Carrie as a, as a, as a young family and going back uh, in a few months for their second term. We pray for a speedy, healthy, quick delivery uh, for this little brother who's coming along. We pray for Kai, who's going to be a big brother, and he's going to be learning all about that and how to adjust to that. And this mom and dad are going to be learning how to adjust to a family of four and now moving back uh, to where home really is for them in Malaysia. Help them as they walk through all of that in this just an additional role that they have as parents, learning through that and walking through that, uh, what to commit to and what to have to say no to and just how to manage their lives day to day. We all have to do that wherever we live. We pray that you would give them grace and wisdom in the context where they're at to do the things that are best. And you, we know that uh, you'll lead them in that, Father. Thank you for the opportunity that we have now to give. We thank you that uh, you've allowed our church to be faithful to do that. Thank you that you've allowed us to do ministry in our community, our city, and to the nations. Uh, Father, I pray that we would continue to be faithful that way as you lead us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible, the greatest epic ever written, spanning the entire history of humanity. From Adam's first breath in the Garden of Eden to the final song of the redeemed in eternity. It tells of kings crowned and deposed, nations created and destroyed, dynasties raised up and brought to the ground. Armies clash, cities are built and destroyed, and prophets point to the future. Through it all, God is carrying out his plan to save mankind. It is beautifully complex, with dozens of themes and hundreds of symbols woven together like a symphony until they come to rest on the shoulders of one man, Jesus. 
Throughout scripture, right from the beginning, this man, the Christ, has been the point of everything. The Bible's promises are about him. The crown has been forged for his head. The prophets have spoken about him. This epic is not fiction, but history. Stories can inspire, but this one, with all its twists and turns, tells what actually is. God really did create human beings in his image, and they rebelled against him. And he did send Jesus to save them from their sins, to redeem them. This isn't just a story. This is our story, our epic. It's the story of redemption. Hey, good morning. My name is Nate. I serve here as the lead pastor and uh, grateful that you're here. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Genesis 18, 1 through 15. It'll be on the screens. I'm going to read it here in just a moment. And uh, grateful for Bernie and Carrie being here. We would say that they're special people. They would not identify as special people. They are ordinary people. Uh, You heard them share. She was a nurse. He was a petroleum engineer. And God set them apart to go to... um, Malaysia. I've been there. Uh, Brian McCoy and I were there in October, I believe, of 2015. And he said this, to be Malay is to be Muslim. And it's not just the fact that um, almost half of the country is Muslim and it's on your ID card. If you're Malay, you actually get um, better mortgage rates for your house than people who are non-Malay. You actually get first dibs at jobs if you're Malay and not Malay. And so there is palpable racism. Uh, there are some things that are going on in the country that they're trying to remedy that. But it's, uh, as, as Bernie said, the Joshua Project, which is a project that tried to discern the unreachedness of particular ethnicities, and they um, categorize them as 99% unreached. And so there's access, but they don't know Christ. And so uh, it's a pretty um, amazing city, but uh, the gospel is really new. So I'm grateful for Bernie and Carrie being here gives you a face, doesn't it? You know, we talk about Lottie Moon Christmas offering and our offering of $40,000, which is an offering, by the way, right? We want you to continue to give if you're a regular tender member and you give. We don't want you to say, hey, I'm gonna, this month going to give to the Lottie Moon and not give. We want you to continue to give, but then sacrificially give an offering to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And we're going to have some creative ways that we explain what that would look like if each household uh, took ownership and responsibility. But you get to see Bernie. You get to see Carrie. And hopefully you, you write their names down or maybe get, a, uh, get their email address. And so you, that'll be something that you can continue to pray for them and be mindful of them. I met my wife April 29, 2001. We began to date shortly after that. And we had a breakup in the summer of 2002. It was 99.9% my fault. You can round up to 100%. It was 100% my fault. And uh, just a short end of, of saying it, I was just, just 21 and I was a jerk. That's probably, that was really what it came down to. And my wife would affirm that. And she left either late in the evening or early in the morning. My sister drove with her. And I'll just be honest, my family was pretty ticked at me because they liked her a whole lot more than they liked me. 
And if they were given the option, have Lauren as part of the family or Nathan, there really would be no competition, and I would lose on that uh, every single time. And so I was fully expecting a conversation to ensue from her dad. Her dad had affectionately told me that I could call him Larry, but when he called me on this particular day after we broke up, 859-552-4620, I don't remember the specific time, but I do remember where I was and what was going on in the world, the events of the world, uh, politics, what I ate that morning and where I was going the rest of the day. It is emblazoned in my mind. And he said, hey, Nathan, this is not Larry Butler. This is Dr. Butler. Oh, Dr. Butler. And he goes, hey, I know that you guys uh, broke up. I want to ask you to do something for me. We're about to go on vacation, and I want to ask you not to call, text, or see Lauren for four weeks. Do you think that you can do that? And I said, yes, sir. He goes, do I have your word? And I said, yes, sir. Well, two weeks later, I was transitioning from Lexington, Kentucky to Louisville, Kentucky to be a college pastor, and I was feeling lonely, uh, transitioned. I knew I had made an egregious mistake, and so I snuck a phone call to Lauren, and she only said one word. I'll tell you what that one, one word was in just a moment, but I said something along the lines, Lauren, I'm sorry. I was a jerk. I love you, and I want to marry you. And she said, bye. That's all she said. Now, um, Lauren um, would tell you at that time she loved me and I loved her. And she knew that if I had put together some type of plan over the phone, hey, meet me at midnight by the oak tree and we're going to go to Gatlinburg, Tennessee and we're going to elope, she probably would have done it because she loved me and she was not thinking clearly, not about loving me, but because at times, you know, you got to, that wasn't funny, Stacey Devereaux. And, um, and so here's what she did. She went and she told on me. She told her dad, Dad, I know Nathan was told by you not to call me. I just want to let you know he did. And I'm not thinking clearly. I love this boy, and I need you to basically be my authority as you are. So I'm coming coming under your authority. So I got another phone call from Dr. Larry Butler, 859-552-4620. Hey, Nathan, do you have a moment? I do have a moment. Um, Hey, do you remember when you gave me your word that you would not call Lauren, (laughs) yes, sir, I need you to be a man of your word. Do you think that you can do that the second time? Yes, sir, I think that I can do that. And I thought to myself, truly, I am never going to see this woman for the rest of my life. It's done. Uh, Little did I know that my boss and my future father-in-law were basically making me sweat it out for weeks on end, and my student pastor, who was my boss, thought that I needed a little humility, and he was accurate. I did. And so you know how the story ended. We're married, and if you want to know more about that details, that'll be a sidebar conversation another day. But what did I do? I broke my promise, didn't I? I gave my promise. I gave my word that I would not do this, and I went back on my promise. And maybe you don't have a situation like that where you've committed to do something of that nature, but all of us have probably either broken promises or been the recipient of a broken promise, right? Marriage is a promise, right? Parenting is full of promises. A mortgage is a promise. Getting a car loan is a promise. Friendships are comprised of promises. And every one of us, if you're a believer If you're not a believer, if you're religious or irreligious, all of us have been the recipient of someone who has broken a promise, and we ourselves have probably 
broken a promise as well. But what I want you to see in Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15, is that God is the God of the impossible, and despite difficulties, God will confirm his promises. God will see his promises come to fruition. He's faithful, he's sovereign, he's providential, and he will see his promises come to fruition. I want to read Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. It will be on the screen, and as is our custom, not all the times, once I complete reading verse 15, I'll say, this is God's word, and if you see fit, you can say, thanks be to God with me. Here is chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is your... Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. You You see in this passage, among many things, that despite difficulties, God will confirm his promises. God's promise to Abraham and Sarah is that he will indeed give them a son whose name will be Isaac. And this passage, this narrative is broken into two parts. The first part is this visitation by these three individuals, one of whom is God, we'll later see in verse 9 and 10, and the details of hospitality. And the second part, as you'll see on the screens, is the Lord rebuking Sarah because of unbelief. First part, the visitation by God and two angels and the details of hospitality. And the second part is the Lord rebuking Sarah for her, for her unbelief. And the big idea that I want you to walk away from this morning, if someone were to ask you, as I so often say, what was the sermon about today? You should be able to say, as I'm going to mention it about 67 times, despite difficulties, God will confirm his promises. The Bible tells us in chapter 18, verse 1, that the Lord appeared. Yahweh appeared to him as he, Abraham, sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. This is what's called a theophany, a physical appearance of God. And where is Abraham? Abraham is at the door of his tent. He was without a land. 
He is without a son and he is without a homeland. He is still a stranger and an alien in this particular place. And Abraham, with seemingly a sense of urgency, goes, bows down before these strangers and urges them to rest as he prepares food for them. You might ask the question, does Abraham know who these people are? At times it appears that Abraham knows who he is interacting with, and other times it does not appear that he knows who he is interacting with. But nevertheless, in this passage, Moses, who wrote Genesis, verses 1 through 8, he gives us some details of hospitality. Hospitality in Near East culture was really, really important, very significant. It was a highly esteemed virtue. I'm going to talk more about that next week uh, in Genesis 18, verse 16 through chapter 19, as I walk through Sodom and Gomorrah, that story. If you have been in church, um, you know probably the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Next Sunday is our first Sunday of the month where we have the elementary age kids come into service. We are in the process of telling people that we're not going to have the kids in service next Sunday because I'm preaching on Sodom and Gomorrah. And there are things that the text is there and I need to preach that probably just aren't age appropriate. It's a PG-13 sermon. I do think it's in the Bible. You should not, as a parent or a grandparent, ignore what's in the Bible. You need to talk about things in the Bible because your elementary age kids' peers are talking about the things that I'm going to talk about next Sunday. And it's important that you control the narrative and beat people to the punch, so to speak, and have a conversation about sexuality and lifestyles that I'm going to talk about next Sunday, which is not the main point, but it's there, and I need to deal with it, all right? So the kids are going to be in here. If you'd like them to be in here to start a bunch of conversations in your home, I'm happy to provide that, okay? Um, but hospitality was massive. It was almost sacred. To not show hospitality was deeply offensive. In fact, where Bernie and Carrie are even with Muslims and Christians and Hindus, regardless of your religious persuasion and bent, hospitality in uh, Asian culture is a very prominent virtue. It was there in Indonesia, it's been there in Cambodia, it's been there in Vietnam, it's been in the Philippines, it's been in uh, South Korea, it's been in Myanmar. It is pervasive in the Eastern culture. And the Bible tells us the specifics of this hospitality there was a lavish feast, a tender and good calf, a great delicacy, and he, Abraham, chooses it for himself because he wanted to ensure that this calf that was going to represent him was a good representation of him. But a meal, a hospitality, is not just important because it's a meal. It was important because of what took place. It was a forum where relational intimacy not only was initiated, but was cultivated. You'll see on the screens, in Near Eastern culture, covenants and treaties were often discussed, arranged, ratified, established over a meal. To dine, to, to dine together was a symbol of a peaceful agreement. Even at Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments, there was a feast that was involved. They ate and drank before the Lord. So God is coming to Abraham, and he's coming not just for a meal, which, by the way, as an aside, this is the only meal before the incarnation, Jesus stepping out of heaven, putting some skin on, so to speak, the Word of God dwelling among us, John chapter 1. 
verse 1, verse 14. This is the only meal whereby God is given a meal and he actually partakes. Why? Because this is important, what's going on in Genesis 18. There's this covenant, this promise, this agreement that's being established and ratified and restated to Abram. And God is going to bless Abraham and Sarah because God is going to be faithful to his promises despite the difficulties that are in front of them. So the meal, the details of the hospitality, we might be tempted to dismiss them as unimportant. It's not significant. It's not really germane to the big idea in terms of God being faithful to confirm his promises despite all the difficulties. The hospitality, the meal, is a prelude to an announcement that's about to take place. Despite the difficulties, God's going to confirm this to Abraham and Sarah. And so you have this visitation. Two angels, the Lord, visiting Abraham over a meal, confirming, establishing, ratifying an agreement, a promise, the covenant that he had already given to Abraham, but he wants to give it to him again and restate it. And in part two, looking at verse 9 through 15, you see the Lord rebukes Sarah over her unbelief that God will indeed confirm his promises. If you look in verse 9, they, they, the three, said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And then what does verse 10 say? The Lord, the Lord said. The Lord are some words to indicate that the Lord said, it's not just they, it goes from a singular. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. I've appointed a time that you're going to have a son. It's going to be about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And what is Sarah doing? Like any good wife, she's eavesdropping. She's eavesdropping on the conversations. Husbands have done that as well, right? She's eavesdropping on the conversation. And what does Sarah do? What is her physical response, her emotional response to hearing the Lord tell Abraham, next year you're going to have a son? What does she do? She does about like that. She cries, but she laughs. She laughs. She heard the promises and she reflected upon her life and she laughed. The age of childbearing has passed. There's a euphemism, the way of women. The way of women is a biblical euphemism for the menstrual cycle, okay? I have passed the age of childbearing. I don't, there, it's just not in my future. God's gonna have to do something miraculous with the physiological nature of my body because it ain't happening. And if you asked her at age 85 or 90 if she wanted to have a baby, she might have said no, right, ladies? I mean, she would have said, I don't really want a baby, okay? I'm past the child-bearing age. And then she says in verse 12, look at it with me. So Sarah laughed to herself. She laughed to herself. No one's around. She's in the tent. She laughs to herself, saying to herself, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Again, after I'm worn out, it's referring to clothes or sandals that have been worn so much that they are of no use anymore. She's saying, I am old. 
I've been wearing this jacket. I've been wearing these pants. I've been walking in these shoes for so long. They are of no use anymore. I've been using them for so long, and I am old. I am past childbearing age. If God's going to do something, this was not the posture of Sarah, but this is us reading back in the Old Testament. If God is going to do something through Sarah, he's going to have to do something extraordinarily awesome and supernatural because she's past the childbearing age. But this narrative is included in Genesis so that when Israel hears this, most likely hears the words of Genesis being read, as they are either in exile or about to enter the promised land, they are hearing this story to be reminded of the truth that God will confirm his promises despite difficulties. Now what does the Lord, Yahweh, do to Sarah. She said to herself, she laughed to herself, and what does the Lord do? He rebukes her. He confronts her. God, being omniscient, having all knowledge, knew that she had laughed and knew what she spoke to herself, and God, who loves us enough to not just sit idly or passively by, engages Sarah and rebukes her, and she immediately knows she immediately knows and realizes that someone has heard me. It was not Abraham, it was the Lord. And the Lord appeared into her heart and she laughs. She is what I would describe as a reluctant believer, apprehensive, incredulous, doubtful, skeptical. She's, she's got a posture of, I don't think this is going to happen. She's reluctant to believe in the promises of God. Now, I'm going to do this next Sunday. I'm going to bring out a big dry erase board. I'm going to have some lights that light up, and I'm going to have a fluorescent dry erase board. So it's going to be really cool. You should come back just to see the board. It's kind of neat. Um, and I'm going to draw a diagram on the board because what we often do as Christians, we look at Old Testament narrative, and what we say is we should be like Abraham we should be like Noah, who was a righteous man. We shouldn't be like Eve and Adam, who didn't own their sin, who wanted to blame shift. We don't want to be like Sarah, who mocked and laughed at the promises of God. And so when we look at narrative, oftentimes, as a Christian, what we do is that we want to moralize the text. Be like this, don't be like that. Model your life, emulate that person. That's not what God wants us to do with Old Testament narrative. He does not want us just to look at the Bible and look at who plays a prominent part in the passage and say, oh, I want to be like Abraham and not Sarah. So next week, I'm going to talk about how are we as Christians to view and understand and rightly interpret Genesis or specifically narrative because certainly we see in Sarah an example that we don't want to follow. As you'll see on the screen, she's a reluctant believer. And there's a lots of questions that we could ask ourselves that would be right and appropriate, though they, though they are not the main point of the text. Right? Here's some questions that maybe you think about when you think about Genesis 18. Do you regard God's promises with hesitation or reluctance? Like Sarah. Church should be a safe place. Uh, just a little glimpse, we don't have everything together. There are people who are walking with the Lord and the joy of the Lord is their strength and things are going well, but there are people who are struggling. They have doubts, they have hang-ups, they've got issues, 
they got disbelief. And so this should be a place where we welcome that and we shouldn't scoff and mock at that. But do you regard God's promises with hesitation or reluctance? God wants us to believe in his promises. Maybe another question is, has Jesus really, truly secured a place for me in heaven? Has God really supplied all of my needs? Like I can think about my life and I think about the landscape of my life and there's lots of things that I feel like I need and is God, Philippians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, is God really going to supply all of my needs to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus? As Paul says, he will, a promise. Is God really going to sustain me in the midst of physical circumstance where I'm just being honest, I'm not even holding on. Is God holding on to me? God wants us not to be a reluctant, hesitant believer. He does want us to come vulnerable and transparent. And where we ask the Father for grace and divine assistance, do you know what the Father will give us every single time? Grace and divine assistance every single time. If you look at chapter 18, verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now this is where studying helps and to know some of the language and to consult some people who are much more intelligent than I am. The word hard has a lot of significance here. Elsewhere, as you'll see on the screens, it's translated in Psalm 139, verse 6, to describe the extraordinary knowledge of God. Is anything too hard? The extraordinary knowledge of God. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is an awesome passage. Another passage that uses the same word here in Genesis 18, verse 14. In Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah is writing and describing one of the titles of the future promised king, Sarah's ultimate son, and one of his name would be Wonderful Counselor. The word can be translated too wonderful, too extraordinary, or surpassing. So here it means, here it means nothing is too extraordinary for God. Nothing is too marvelous for God. Nothing is too surpassing for God. God delight in doing that which is not only wonderful or surpassing, but that which is beyond our understanding. Is anything too hard, too wonderful, too surpassing, too extraordinary for the Lord? And the answer is no. No. Alan Ross says this, nothing is incredible for those who are in covenantal fellowship with the Lord because nothing is too marvelous for him. I'll read it again. Nothing is incredible for those who are in covenantal fellowship, meaning those who are believers, those who have believed in the promises of God as seen in his son Jesus, Nothing is incredible for those who are in covenantal fellowship with the Lord because nothing is too marvelous for him. And despite difficulties, God will confirm his promises. Now, unfortunately, we have, for all time, the preservation of Sarah's response. So when Israel is listening to Genesis being read to them as they are either in exile or about to enter the promised land, what do they learn about Sarah's response? She laughed. God said, I'm going to do something. 
And one of their matriarchs, Sarah, laughed. We don't want to be like that. We want to to believe in the promises of God. And her response is not only preserved for Israel, but it's preserved for us as well. And what does God say to Sarah? She says, I didn't laugh. And what does God say? Oh, no, Sarah, but you did. Von Rad, who's a theologian, which I would love to have the name Von Rad, by the way, says the unquestionable, decisive fact for both narrator and reader is that a word of God was laughed at. The unquestionable and decisive factor for narrator and reader is that a word of God was laughed at. Now, maybe something doesn't come to the forefront of your mind, but have you ever thought that one of the promises of God or something that God wanted you to do or something that God taught you not through experiences but through his word and he impressed a truth upon your heart, did you ever think, that's just too far-fetched? It's not going to happen. Something miraculous would need to happen and I don't know if I believe that. I have at times. I've thought about God's promises. I've thought about my own life. I've thought about other people who are going through hellishly difficult things. And I thought, I want to speak a word of promise to them, but I feel almost sheepish and embarrassed to give this promise to them. And I'm not sure I believe it. I'm not sure I've embraced it at a heart level. And yet God is the God of impossible. El Shaddai, last week, where he revealed himself to Adam Abraham is there, El Shaddai, Almighty, the the powerful one who will act acts of supernatural effort because he's El Shaddai, the mighty, powerful one. He has to do it. And what we need to do with Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15, we don't want to stay there. We want to look into the future, the New Testament, and read back into the Old Testament with an understanding of what we see in the New Testament because the point of Genesis is not that we would leave and be like Abraham who bowed down and worshiped God, who enacted all the rites and rituals of this sacred virtue of hospitality, and we don't want to be like Sarah who laughed in disbelief. So when we leave here, be like Abraham and be like Sarah because there's no power in that. What we do at Foothills is not character studies on a Sunday morning. Though we do think there are characters we should emulate, but they all point to the one whereby we can actually live out a life of character. The only way you can worship God rightly is to have your inner inner life changed. The only way that you can actually believe in the promises of God and not laugh and not scoff is that God has to change us so there's no power in looking at somebody's life, the power comes through Jesus. So I want to show you from this text why we need to see Jesus, why we need and have to see Jesus. You cannot interpret the Bible, the Old Testament, to the neglect of the New Testament. They go together. They're one big fat story telling an awesome story about the redemption in Christ. Let me show you. Luke chapter 1 This is the angel Gabriel's interaction with Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. Let me read this for you. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Praise God. That's coming. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how is this going to happen? This is a good question. How am I going to bear a son and his name be Jesus who will save his people from their sins and who will have a kingdom that is from everlasting? How? Because I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. Appropriate right question. Verse 37, what does the angel say? For nothing will be impossible with God. It sounds pretty similar to what we've been looking at. Is anything too hard? Is anything too wonderful and surpassing and extraordinary for the Lord? Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, here's a response. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If you fast forward to the book of Galatians, it's a letter that the apostle St. Paul wrote to the saints in Galatia. He tells the saints, believers in Christ, in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, at the appointed time, God will bring forth his son. Again, does that sound strikingly familiar to another narrative? Of course, Genesis 18. At the appropriate time, God is going to bring about his son. And just like God does with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, God, we see, is discussing his plans, not just with Adam and Adam, Abraham and Sarah, but he's discussing his plans and his purposes over another meal that we see in the New Testament. Matthew 26, Jesus is having a meal with the disciples. It's called the Last Supper, the Last Supper. And remember, in Near Eastern culture, promises, covenants, Treaties were often discussed and arranged and ratified and established over a meal. And so to dine together was a symbol of a peaceful agreement. And Jesus has a meal with his disciples. And what is Jesus doing in this meal? He's saying God is going to do something new. God is going to do something new. He is about to provide a way for you to have peace with your creator. Whereas in the past you were separated from sin, you were his enemy, now you are going to be called his friend. You were once far off, but now you're going to be brought near by the blood of Christ. And he says this meal is not of bread and fish. This meal is my body, he says in John chapter 6 verses 50 through 58 he says unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood you shall have no part with me now he's not talking about cannibalism right a lot of people say oh you're supposed to interpret the bible literally no you're not no you're not the bible is full of all different types of genre of literature if jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood uh i'm going elsewhere he's talking about believing and taking him all in. Unless you 
eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Unless you take me and believe upon me, you shall have no part with me. You cannot have peace. You're not going to be a benefactor of the promises of God. And Jesus tells us it all started with his own miraculous birth, not with the woman who was past childbearing age, but with a young woman who was in childbearing age, but who did not know man. And the Holy Spirit came upon her and supernaturally Jesus came into the world, validating that he is not like you and he's not like me. And he came not to promise a child, but he came making a promise that anyone could be part of his kingdom and be blessed on account of his body being broken for our sins and his blood literally being poured out. So the question is, is anything, Genesis chapter 18 verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. Unequivocally, no. Marriages to be reconciled. A spouse or child that has turned their back on Jesus to bring them back. A friend or a coworker or a family member or spouse finally bending their knee to the sovereign, benevolent king whose name is Jesus. Victory over a sin that continually seems to have an upper hand in your life. The strength to get out of bed in the midst of horrific circumstance when you just don't think that you can physically do it. Isaiah 41. When you walk through the fire, I'll be with you. God says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So God doesn't ever start something that he doesn't finish. So if he started a work in you, his integrity is on the line. That he will finish what he started. That you can have a peace that looks at all the circumstances in your life and know that nothing, nothing is going to take my peace and my joy away. The peace that surpasses all understanding. Or Romans chapter 8, verses 37 to 39. And Paul says, there's all these things, height nor death. There's all this, this spectrum and nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. All, all, all of the promises of God that we see all throughout the Bible find their yes in Christ. So is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer, Christian brother, Christian sister, is no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And God will confirm his promises despite the difficulties that we see and face. So here's what I want to do. I'd like us for the next couple minutes, and I know some of you are new, and you're like, is he going to ask me to stand up? No, I'm not going to ask you to stand up, come to the front, but I just want us to pray. Because maybe you're like me. I think about friends Shahrazad and Mace. I think about my friends Chris and Taylor. I think about people in my family that need to come to faith in Christ who rebel against the truth that's spoken in the Bible. I think about marriages that seem like they're about to just call it quits and be done, and some have, but haven't officially divorced, and I think there's no way God could work. I think about my kids, Lucy and Lydia, Samuel, Lorelai, and I can't change their heart, and I was crying out for them in the first verse that God would save my kids. Let's just ask God, who's a good father, that we would pray, God, incline our hearts, that we would believe 
that you will confirm your promises. And it always helps to think about some truth. So maybe Philippians 4, 8 through 9. God, would you give somebody the peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of unbelievably difficult circumstances? God, would you promise to sustain them and me in the midst of hardships? God, would you promise that you would really be present with me in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, when you say you're going to be with me and you want me to go and have courageous conversations? I feel like you're not with me, but you, would you confirm your promises? So let's just take a couple minutes and just do some reflection and ask God that God would work and do that which is only possible through him, and then we'll sing together. Because I don't want you to leave and think, hey, that was helpful. Thanks for hospitality details. Thanks for some historical context. The point is that God wants us to be followers of his, where we actually see and embrace and believe he can do that which is too hard for us, but it's not hard for him. So let's pray together. Father, help us to trust in your promises, Lord, that nothing's too hard for you. Lord, help us to trust that with God all things are possible. Lord, that you have promised to supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory. Lord, that you promise never to leave us or forsake us. And Lord, that you who began a good work will be faithful to complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. And Lord, we admit as your children, all those promises at times elude our hearts. But Lord, we need our faith to be strengthened in that, Lord, to walk in that. Lord, help us not to be hesitant or reluctant. Help us to take it one day at a time. So, Lord, this week, when we face something, Lord, help us not to cower to circumstances or fear. But, Lord, help us to roll our shoulders back and to walk in faith and to act like we believe you've already won it. And, Lord, because of that, it's already a reality in our lives. And Father, I pray for anyone in the room, Lord, struggling with a relationship with you, that you'd encourage them, Lord, that they can surrender that to you too and say, God, I, I need to know you better and I need to follow you. 
And Lord, that today could be the day that that begins. And so, Lord, help us to trust in your promises, believe in what you are. Hey, let's stand together. Walking around these walls, I thought by now they'd fall. But you have never failed me. For you have never failed me yet Your promise still stands Great is your faithfulness Faithfulness I'm still in your hands This is my confidence
God's people said to that, He'll come through for you. Hey, just uh, several announcements. One is the newcomer's dessert. If you're, um, we've got like 10 or 11 families that have registered for that. It's that Pastor Craig, who is right up here, uh, and his bride Kim, their house. Real informal. We're just going to uh, do some introductions and uh, have some dessert. And so if you are coming, great. We'll see you tonight. If you'd like to come, you can talk to me or guest services. We would love to have you. And then we promise to do this the last Sunday of the month. Here's what's coming up for the next couple months at Foothills. We've got a fall picnic at dessert uh, at Desert Foothills Park. Angel Tree, which is where we actually buy gifts for kids whose parent or parents are in prison. It's a tremendous way for us to love on them during a very difficult time. So that starts November 25th. And December 2nd really starts in terms of us collecting money. December 9th will be our official Sunday uh, for that. It's always the second Sunday of December. And then we've got a family meeting that night where we'll approve our budget for 2019 and some other things there. December 9th, um, a multi-generational choir. So if you're older, younger, the first rehearsal is this afternoon. You can see Pastor Craig right here, and that's going to be immediately following our family meeting. And then we have two Christmas Eve services, 3 and 4.30. And um, hey, it was great having Bernie and Carrie here. We often talk many times about being the church in here, so we really, in a very real way, I kind of get to send them out. Uh, When you are on the field for three or four years on your term, you uh, accrue stateside time so they actually have I think it's almost a year accrued but they're going back early because oftentimes the work is still going on and, and they want to get back to the work so go meet Bernie and Carrie give them a gift card to Chili's or something like that as he mentioned that and uh, Bernie Carrie great to have you and it's been great being the church in here let's go be the church out there you're dismissed <laughs>